Father, we thank you for your living and active word. And we desire this morning to feast on it together. Lord, I thank you for Lyndon. I thank you for his diligence, for his preparation, for the wisdom that he carries that is from you, for his heart of passion and of compassion, for his integrity. And Lord, I pray that as he speaks this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out of him, that you would be speaking to him, that as he ministers, he himself would be ministered to. Lord, I thank you that he's your friend and he knows your voice. So would you speak over him this morning? Lord, I pray for us. Would you give us ears to hear and open hearts to hear your word and to let it take root within us? In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I got this one. I got two. Hi, everybody. We are on the final of the series of New Testament heroes. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Should we have a quick recap? Who have we had so far? Last week was Sam, my wife, and she was speaking about the centurion. Who was before that? I'm, you shout out, I won't know. Mary. Mary, yep. Oh, yeah, Joseph did Mary. And then Mary of Bethany. Paul the Apostle. What did Rob do? Come on. Ananias, yeah. Obscure. Well done. Yeah, good. It's been really interesting. Personally, I've been really getting a lot out of this. It's been such a joy to, to look into this particular hero, who I'll tell you who is in a minute. But thinking about heroes made me think, well, what is a hero? You know, what, you know, is it somebody who has a sword? You know, what is a hero? And um, so I was thinking, you know, psychologists say you should examine who your heroes are, and that will tell you quite a lot about where you're going in life. Um, you know... Um, just seeing if it says up there. <laughs> um, you know, when you think about who you want to be, uh, your hero, your heroes can tell you a lot about that. Who are your heroes? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Who, which people do you really admire? Which people do you want to be like? Even because there's a difference. Because there's some people I admire. I have a friend, and he's got some gall. I love this guy. He's amazing. He got on his. Um, he, he loves riding his motorbike, and he he wanted to go to Ilkley unhindered by speed cameras, so he got out, got his spray can, sprayed every speed camera all along the way so that they couldn't catch him on his motorbike, and I'm like, wow, like that guy is living off the chain, he's doing whatever he wants, I admire him, but I don't want to be him, he's, he's not my hero, he's kind of gone to the dark side a little bit there, <laughs> he still lives at home with his mum, and none of these things are features I aspire towards, although I do live next door to my mum, so I haven't gone that far. So yeah, what is a hero? A hero is somebody who, whose attributes you aspire towards, who you want to be like, who you want to emulate and become. Um, I'm thinking about growing up in church, because um, we get presented with a lot of people at the church. And as I was growing up in my dad's church, there's always uh, like a bunch of speakers coming in all the time. There's these um, American speakers coming in, you know, oh, they're from overseas, they're American, and they go, Jesus, and you know, all that kind of, oh, they were exciting people. And they used to come and stay in my house, and I'd be like, oh, who are these people? But they weren't my heroes. And there's another guy who used to come along, he's a brilliant Bible teacher, really loved him. He was great. And he used to tell us, he'd read through the Bible, and you'd sit there, and it pull out all this stuff, and it, you basically, when you're listening, you're like, oh, yeah, I need to, I need to um, 
get more into this. I need to try more. I need to read my Bible. He's made it so obvious. You know, you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to go pray more. I, I need to, you know, read my Bible more. I need to be more godly. And I always like come away thinking, I must try harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go. But then, you know, you go home and you just get on with your life, don't you? No, and you come back. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I knew I needed to do it, but this guy somehow just, you know, he's always urging. Church can be a bit urgy. Come on, do this more, do this. But somehow he never quite, you know, got me going. But this, this other man used to come. And man, he was something else. He was my hero growing up. He was a great guy. He's, um, he's called John Edwards and he's a Welshman. And uh, he, he'd lived his life differently. He had, um, he'd li- lived in Ireland during the Troubles. Right, when all, and he'd had all these experiences with God. He'd lived overseas as a missionary. He was so like, he was living his life somehow, and God was so present in it. It was just amazing. He used to tell us these stories about what God had done in his life. He'd tell us these stories about um, one time he was in a queue at a fish and chip shop. He got his fish and chips, went out into the car, and then he felt like God, the Holy Spirit, told him to move his car. He moved his car, and a bomb went off in the fish and chip shop, killed everybody. Whoa, when I was listening to that, I'm like, wow. You know, I need to get to know this God a lot better. Um, he used to tell us other stories about he, he needed some money. There's like some really randomly specific amount of money to pray. And he was praying, God, help me meet this like 1,300 and whatever pound bill. You know, God, I, I, need to, I need the money to meet this bill. I don't have it. And uh, God said, put it on his heart to go down to Boots. He's like, why Boots? Well, why? I need money. Not like plasters and pharmaceuticals but anyway he went down and there was a lady in boots who got told her to go to boots and give him some money and I'm like mind blown like I'm like wow then when I was listening to this I like I want to be that guy I wanted that I wanted that in my life I went away and I read my bible and I prayed and I did all those things because I was inspired to because this guy was living his life in a different way he was all in he was living it some like he wasn't just reading about it he was doing it that's what inspired me. So he was my hero growing up. And there's a couple of things about it. When he told his stories, you could tell he wasn't perfect. In fact, usually God was coming to his rescue. You know, he was the damsel in distress, and God was the hero in his stories. Because you don't have to have it all perfect. And somehow I thought, yeah, I relate to that. I'm not perfect. I wonder if you relate to that. I'm not, you know, like we can't get it all right. But yet, something about the way he was living his life was having way more God in it than some other people are living their lives like, you know, and they've got all the moves. Do you know what I mean? They're doing everything the way we think, but somehow he was living his life with this different attitude, this sense of all in, and God was coming to his rescue. God was his hero. So then I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about who's my hero in the New Testament? Who's like that in the New Testament? You know, who's real? Um, you know, like a real down-to-earth kind of person, but, you know, not, not necessarily have it all together, but he sees God move more than anybody else. Who is that person? For me, there's no question. There's only one person that could ever be, and that's Peter. So, <laughs> he's so, yeah, um, a lot of love for Peter out there. What a dude. He's, so, he's such an exciting guy to read about. It's been, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure reading about Peter, basically stuffing things up throughout the whole of the gospel, and Jesus being there with him. But he's got this attribute of being all in. 
If you know anything about him, you read, read through all the stories of Peter and just think, is this guy all in or not? And it just comes to you over and over and over again how full on all in he is. And God and Jesus come into his rescue and he sees a different level of Jesus all the time. He's getting closer and closer to Jesus and yet he doesn't have it all right. He doesn't have, you know. So one of my favorite stories, just wanted to, like we're going to look at a few stories of Peter. We'll just go through them quickly because there's so many. So one of them, Peter's in, is the disciple now. He starts to be recognized as um, in Jesus' entourage. And um, the temple tax guys come to him. And uh, Jesus is not with him. Normally, Jesus fields all the questions, you know, the difficult questions to Jesus. Peter's just there to kind of, you know, do the fun stuff. And, um, but Jesus is not there. And they come to him with a, a difficult question. Um, and it's about theology. Um, and so they say to him, Peter, does your master pay the temple tax or not? And you know how they're always trying to trip Jesus up with these complicated questions, but Jesus has got the answer because he's got it all down. But Peter's like, can you imagine if you were in that position? I mean, we do get in that position quite a bit, don't we? Like people asking us complicated, like theological questions about, you know, what, what would Jesus vote in Brexit and stuff like that? <laughs> but Peter looks around and um, he looks at these temple guys and he's like, he's on his own. He's, Jesus is not there. And he goes, they say, well, does your master pay the temple tax? And he goes, yep, yep, <laughs> I think he does. Yep, he would definitely pay it. Every, yep, good people pay the temple tax. Yep, he pays the temple tax. And so he goes off, he gets back to base, and Jesus is there. And Jesus knows somehow what's been going on. And he quizzes him a little bit. Um, which is that, you know, that moment where you've realized you've been caught out a little bit. Um, that must have happened quite a lot for Peter. Uh, and he gets back and Jesus says, Peter, um, what's the temple tax for? Is it for, um, is it for the temple? Do the, do the people who are in the temple pay the temple tax? Or do the people who come to the temple pay the temple tax to keep the temple going? Is it for the sons uh, or is it for those who come? And what he's getting at is Jesus is the temple. Okay, so he doesn't have to pay the temple tax. He is the temple. The tax is for people who work for the temple. Jesus is the absolute embodiment of the temple. Therefore, he doesn't need to pay the temple tax. Other people pay the temple tax for the temple. Peter, the light starts to go on. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we don't need to pay the tem temple tax, do we? No. Uh, and then he goes, all right. Uh, I'm kind of making this up a little bit. You might want to avoid those guys out there. There's a couple of temple tax guys they are going to be expecting some money from you. You might want to just stay inside for the rest of the day and avoid them. But Jesus, now, all right, throughout the gospel, people get stuff wrong. That Jesus sometimes has quite harsh words for people who, who have uh, lived the wrong way. You know, brood of vipers, uh, you whitewashed tombs, you know, all this kind of thing. I wonder what Peter was expecting. He's really, you know, he's really stuffed up. What's he expecting here? No, what actually happens is he says, Peter, come here. I'm not paying the temple tax. But what we'll do is so that you don't offend them. I want you to go fishing, catch a fish, pull the temple tax out of its mouth because the first fish you catch is going to have the money for the temple tax and give it to them. And, and that way, that's how we're going to pay our temple tax. Like, I'm not paying it because I am the temple, but we're going to go catch a fish and pay it that way. I mean, <laughs> so first of all, Peter is stuffed up. He, he's got it wrong. He doesn't have his theology right. And yet... 
His relationship with Jesus is such that in that instance, what does he get to do? He gets to see more of God. He gets to go fishing and pull coins out of the mouth. Who wouldn't want to do that? So Peter's doing something so right that his relationship with Jesus means he gets to see more and more and more. He doesn't have to be perfect, does he? He's clearly not. But he sees more and more. God is revealed to him in these amazing words. If you caught a fish, if that happened to you, you would never forget it for the rest of your life. It would be, you know, mind-blowing. So Peter, he's not perfect, but he does, he is all in. In fact, Peter is so, it's like every decision he makes is just all in, all in, all in, all the time. So do you remember the um, the the there's a passage about um, where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he's washing his disciples' feet, and uh, Jesus is giving this great illustration of how, um, you know, when, when in the kingdom of heaven, the, the leader serves, uh, and he's serving his disciples, and saying, that's how it is in my kingdom, this is how it's going to be. And Peter's like, no, 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 mate, you're not serving me, I'm serving you. He's not getting on board with it. He's like, you'll never, uh, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. And Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not in, because that's how it is in my kingdom. You're not in. And Peter, like, just imagine the blood sort of draining from his face, because this is how he is. He's like, okay, God, wash me all. Wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything. He's like, he's, that's how his, his response is as soon as he realizes this is what's at stake, he's running, he's going. I think probably my favorite story about Peter, one of the most mind-blowing ones of all time that illustrates who he is, who God is, and wow, what the, we're really dealing with here, is um, when Jesus walks on water. Okay, so the disciples are in a boat on their own. They're heading across the sea. They've had a really long day as it happens. I think this is just after the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and they've seen some pretty amazing stuff, but now they're heading across the, uh, the I think it's a big lake, and um, the storm starts coming up and they're all panicking. They think they're going to die. And um, then they start to see Jesus walking towards them on the water. Now, that is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, you know, they've seen miracles happen, right? They know these kind of healing miracles can happen. But what they're seeing now is next level. They're seeing somebody. It's just like he owns the whole world. He does whatever he wants. And they're so mind-blown. They look at him and they say, it must be a ghost. Like, even though they recognize Jesus, even though they know exactly who he is, the best possible explanation for what's going on here is this is a ghost, right? Anytime that's your best explanation for what you're seeing, this is a ghost, you know you're in, like, complete new territory here. They, are, they do not know what to think. And they're terrified, it says. And, that you know, you imagine them, like, what am I saying? Imagine if you saw that. How would you feel? It's absolutely, like, staggering and mind-blowing. This cannot happen. People cannot walk on water. And so as they're sat there, afraid, thinking about it, what's Peter doing? Taking his coat off. He's like, I'm coming. I want to go. He's running out on the water. He's, he's saying, call to me, Lord. I want to come. Because he's so all in. So where, even though everybody around him is, is um, you know, thinking, what does this mean? Where, how do I fit this into my worldview? It's just shattering. Peter is running towards God. He's running towards Jesus. He wants in more. This is... It's an important attitude. He's, he's all in. I think the best way to really get into this, to really like break it down, is to look at the call to discipleship. 
So we'll put the... Uh, it's happening. Right, Matthew 4. So this is how Peter and uh, Jesus first meet and, and uh, Jesus is calling Peter to follow him. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. So this is like Jesus coming to his place of work. So this is Jesus coming to your office if you want to like, imagine it or wherever you work. Um, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And then look at this response. At once, they left their nets and followed him. So they dropped what they were doing. They dropped the nets and went after Jesus. That's a radical reprioritization of their life right there, isn't it? Like he's doing this, he's in his life, and he sees Jesus. And when he knows God is in this, when he feels that call, he goes straight for it. He just changes everything. He changes the whole, like, I can't get my head around what that would actually be like. It's, it's a very unreasonable response, isn't it? It's full on. He leaves everything and goes and follows Jesus. And yet, something about that, something about that response is what is getting him closer and closer to God. There's a, some more passages in, in Luke 9, which I think really help us understand that. So this is Jesus, it's... Um, Examples of Jesus calling other people. So this is how other people respond. He says, come and be my disciple. And I think probably we probably identify a bit more with this. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems a reasonable request. Um, and Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That seems a bit harsh. Don't you think? It's a bit full on. What's the next one? Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. <laughs> Fair enough. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Eh? Doesn't that seem a bit unreasonable? That seems a bit harsh. Like these guys are saying, I want to come after you. And he's saying, no. Nah. <laughs> like, but, <laughs> like, Wow, I've really had to sit and think, what, like, what on earth am I hearing here? That just sounds so, like, full on. And I think it does, it does require us to think about this a little bit more. What is God saying to us? Um, God is God. He can only ever be one thing. He can only ever be number one. And I think in our lives... It seems reasonable to us to continually negotiate with God where he can be. You know, you can have this bit of me, but you can't have that bit of me. Uh, you know, I just need to focus on my career for a little while. Or, you know, I've just got to get a few things sorted out, some relationships in my life. Or just got to, and we're continually negotiating with God as to where he can be in his life. But what's happening is this is the call into discipleship. This is these people encountering God in human form, they're encountering Jesus, and they're being called to come after him, like we're all being called to come after him, the correct response is drop your nets and go. That is the only response that works. That's the only response that makes sense of who God is. He is the Lord of everything. He is the king of the universe. He is the master of, of everything. He can't negotiate his place. He is everything. He created you. 
There's only one place that God fits in the world, and it's at the top. And so often we want to negotiate where he can fit. We say, you know, I want you to come and make my life better. You know, I've got the plan. I'm the king of my life. You can help me fix the things in my life. Would you do that? Would you come and I'll ask you for a few things and you'll do it and then I'll keep coming to church? That's our deal with God is that he's basically a really great personal assistant with magical powers. That's how we often view him. But he's not. He's God. It's that serious. He he can only ever be everything. Another um, passage that really brings this home. Uh, Do you remember when Matt was speaking about the rich young ruler uh, a few weeks ago? This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, I have obeyed all the um, commandments since I was young. So he's he's got, you know, we're often, we think that's what it's about, don't we? Like, can I get it right? Can I do all the Bible stuff? Can I get it right? And this guy's done it all. He's got it all right. And Jesus says, great, brilliant, love that you've done that. Um, Can you go away, give all your money away, and come back and follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Um, And the the rich young ruler goes away very sorrowful because he has a lot of money. And everyone's like, Flippinek, who can get into this? Who can be? So what's happening in this passage is that Jesus is fighting for his heart. He's fighting for the, like he's done everything right, the rich young ruler. He knows, uh, he knows how to follow the commandments, but Jesus is fighting to be number one. He's fighting to, to be God because he is God. He can only ever be God. He can only ever be number one. And the rich young ruler, he has to wrestle with this. And um, Jesus, like I was thinking, you know, if the rich young ruler came to us, you know, Richard Branson walks in the door of this church or whatever, and we'd be like, come on in, Richard, have a seat at the front. Um, got a checkbook here. I'll help you get rid of your money. No problem. You know, we've got some brilliant ideas how you can spend that. Um, new building for one, you know, we'll be sorted. That, this will be brilliant. We'd be loving it. And yet Jesus wouldn't do that. He'd send him away. Isn't that a challenge? Because why? Because he wants his heart. Because he wants him to get that right. That's how important it is that he sends the massive campaign contributor away. That's how, you know, cynical eyes looking at it. He sends this guy who could change the whole ministry he's got. He sends him away. Come back when you've got no money and I can have your heart. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. He's lived his life right. He's followed all the commandments. Off you go, mate. Come back when you're ready. Wow. That's amazing. Blows my mind. Another couple of people from the, that I've heard about recently, uh, Mary of Bethany. You know, I love um, how Alicia brought that out. We're thinking about um, Mary and Martha and Mary breaking the perfume. And I think when uh, thinking about that idea of all in, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, just soaking him in, just connecting, just seeing who he is and absorbing who he is. And Martha's running around doing all the stuff. She's caught up in all the business. It's important stuff. She's doing the stuff. It's important. This is important stuff she's doing. And yet, Jesus says this, the one who sat at my feet, the one who is, you know, all in, the one who's here doing the thing, that's the person who's doing the right thing in this moment, even above all the work, even above all the rules that the rich young ruler followed, even above all the theology which Peter continually gets wrong. It's about the heart. It's like Alicia was saying at the moment, even if you do 
uh, you know, move a mountain. Even if you speak with the tongues of men and you have not love, if you haven't got that thing right, clanging cymbal, banging gong. In other words, it's just noise, guys. It's just noise. There's one thing we need to get right. There's one thing that comes above all else, and that is who God is. It's our relationship with him, and it's that we give our whole heart to him. We have him as the ruler above all else. Now, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> like, wow, that makes, might make you think, flipping heck, who can get that right? Who can get that right? I think the last part of this might speak to you, because Peter He's, so, he's proper all in, right? I mean, just everything, all in. I'm following nets down. <laughs> you know when he's, um, Jesus is being arrested in the garden and they're coming to take him away. This is it. It's happening. It's kicking off. Peter gets his sword out. He's the one who's charging, probably shouting something really lame to infinity and beyond. Char- you know, <laughs> lops the guy's ear off. Why is he chopping his ear off? Because he's aiming for his head, as Gareth was pointing out. He's so full on. He's so all in. And even in that moment, that guy, Jesus comes and says, Peter, come on, mate. Heals his ear um, and and says, that's not how it's happening. But (laughs) Peter is so full on. He is the all in guy all the time. And yet, when it comes down to it, in the garden, you know, Jesus, uh, Peter's saying, even if everybody else runs away, even if everybody else deserts you, I won't desert you. I'm all in. That's what he's saying. And he's demonstrated. He's, he dropped his nets. He's, you know, wash me all, Lord. Uh, it, all those things. He's demonstrated he's all in. But when it comes down to it, Jesus says, Peter, you're not all in, mate. You are not all in. This night, you will deny me three times. And before the cock crows twice. Can you imagine how Peter felt when that cock crowed? Because that's who he is. I'm the all in guy. You know, he is the one who's like, I'm fully here, I'm fully there. And when that cock crows twice, he realizes, I'm not all in. I'm not all in. And I think we all get there, don't we? (laughs) If you don't look at that and think, oh, on a minute, I'm not all in, then, uh, you know, come on up here and tell me all about it. Um, So it gets to that point, and we realize that actually only Jesus is all in. He's the one who goes to the cross all in. He's the one who um, dies for the whole world, who takes the sin of the world on on himself. He's the one who lives his whole life all in for us. He's the hero of the New Testament who comes to the rescue. And what does he do? He doubles back around. He comes back around to Peter. He He restores him. He says, come on, Peter. It's all right, mate. Come on. And there's that whole passage, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he says that to Peter and he restores him. He brings him back in. Because the hero of the New Testament will come back around for you. Because you're not all in. (laughs) None of us are. We're not all in. But that's the only way to be. And Jesus will keep coming back around for us. He will keep returning and keep fighting as long as you set your heart on him. As long as you put him at the top. And you aim to put him at the top, he will keep coming around when you don't, when you fail. Because he loves us. Because he's the hero of the New Testament. So I want to ask you, as we wrap it up, what in your life, what nets do you need to drop? 
What nets do you need to drop? Where do you need to say, have my hands on my head as well? Where do you need to let God into your life? What areas might you be just negotiating with him? When you get down to it, it's every area. But I want to challenge you to think about it. What's he speaking to you about? Because this is, this is everything. This is the whole Christian journey. This is how you enthrone God as the, as the ruler of creation. It's lining everything up below that. You can't be anywhere else. So where in your life do you need to do that? Where's he coming back round and speaking to you about and restoring you? It's sometimes painful. How painful do you think it was for Peter realizing that? Man, that would have been sharp. <laughs> You're not all in, mate. You know, wow. So I want to encourage you in these closing moments. Is it your work life? Is it your family life? Is it relationships that you're not quite ready to deal with? Is it the way you view the people around you? Have you put God at the top? Have you put him first? Only really you know what that means. But it's, that's what we're called to do. There's only one place for God and it's at the top. That should be a massive, massive challenge. Amen.